Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, authors of Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalist, and the Ski Resort That Never Was. Greg is a longtime writer and journalist for numerous magazines and newspapers, including the Denver Post and Boulder Daily Camera, where he worked for 10 years as arts and entertainment reporter and editor. Catherine Mayer is a writer and journalist whose work has appeared in such publications as Health, Health Insider, and Pop Sugar. She primarily writes about business and is a frequent guest on radio shows, TV shows, and podcasts, podcasts much like mine. They are married since 2017, and they live in the Denver area, which to me sounds awfully cold <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and snowy, likely. But it is a pleasure for me to have you both on the deep dive. How are you this morning? Hey, thanks so much for having us. And yes, sadly, um, we it is often very cold and very <laughs> snowy. Absolutely. I've, I've actually been to Denver a couple of times. Once um, to go out to Red Rocks to see Dave Matthews Band. Oh, with, nice. Um, one of my boys. And um, more recently, recently being like the past three years or so, I was um, at Denver's Startup Week. Yeah, doing some work there. And um, yeah, good times in Denver. I, I Backward baseball caps and flannel shirts are very popular there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're, we're very formal here. <laughs> yeah. Very, very formal, I noticed. Um, but we're not here to talk about the, the greatness of, of Denver. We're here to talk about Disneyland on the mountain. And I, I, was, I was fascinated by this story. Um, because A, it was one that I was not familiar with at all. I had no idea that, that this had even been, uh, a, a fairly monumental, um, and landmark, um, environmental study. Um, so I'm sure many people who pick up the book and, and likely listen to the show will have the same reaction that I had, which is what the fuck was Walt Disney thinking about? Like, this is a <laughs> crazy idea. So, <laughs> so kind of, I'm, I'm going to start with you, Catherine, give me some insight into what prompted you guys to take on this, this story? Like what led you to Disneyland on the mountain? Sure. So I had I had grown up with Disney. Um, so that's that's one thing to to start with and to note. I'd grown up going to the Disney parks and watching all the movies and things like that. And I kind of got Greg into the fold when we when we started dating. But I thought I had known a lot about Disney history, especially. And I was wrong because there was this one piece of, of really exciting and fascinating Disney history that I wasn't really that aware of. And I we had found out a, a more about this when in 
2018, we were in San Francisco and we had gone to the Walt Disney Family Museum, which really focuses on that Disney history. It's run by the Walt Disney Family. It's it's fascinating. Would highly recommend it if anyone is in the San Fran area. But there was a huge timeline of Walt Disney's life, and it had mentioned on again, just a sentence or two on this timeline, it had said that in the 1960s, Walt Disney had tried and failed to build a ski resort in California. And that was a vaguely familiar idea. I thought I had read about it at one point very briefly. And, but we had seen this and we thought, wow, that's that's really interesting. I wonder exactly what happened. And what was extremely interesting to us was it had mentioned this other man named Willie Schaeffler, who was a famous Colorado skier. And we had known his name also because he was the head ski coach at the University of Denver for many years. And the University of Denver is my alma mater. It is where Greg and I had both worked. We had worked at the magazine for for several years. We had met there. And so we thought, that's so weird This that Willie Schaeffler was also involved in this project with Walt Disney. And so we just kind of started asking each other a lot of different questions about this. I wonder exactly what they were trying to build, what happened. And we basically started researching this. And there were there are a couple blogs and, and Disney blogs and things like that that had that had told the story, but but bare bones. But when we really researched it, we realized this wasn't just the fact that Disney at one point had tried and failed to set up the ski resort, but this was something that Walt Disney was extremely passionate about. He really wanted to make happen. And he died in the middle of the planning. This this basically kickstarted a huge environmental battle that lasted over a decade. And we thought, wow, what a what a fascinating story. We basically became obsessed with it and just decided, hey, let's try to tell this in in a book format after we realized again how monumental this this story was. So this was really came out of a of a real passion for us. And 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 Greg, I'll let you um jump in there as well because you know, you were as as Catherine said, kind of pulled into the Disney fold. And, you know, I'm I'm someone who loves the the movies and, and stuff, but I'm um, like the animated movies, but I've never been to Disneyland. I've never been to Disney World. Like, so I'm a, I'm a novice at, at all these things Disney related as it pertains to their, their entertainment. But I do know that that is a, a huge part of their, of their current business. But that was not the case at the time when, when this story starts to unfold, which was a, another thing that I found very fascinating that that you know it's it's easy to think of disney as this um omnipotent conglomerate that sort of controls our our entertainment landscape but back in 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 the 60s it was a very different disney but yet with wild ambition so uh, greg if you can kind of share how how you felt kind of getting pulled into sort of the disney world but also juxtapose that with the disney our listeners are likely um, more aware of today relative to the Disney of 1963, four, five, and so on. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, yeah, we, so when I got pulled in, you know, obviously the Disney of today is Disneyland, Disney World, there's parks overseas, there's a cruise line. I mean, it's really huge. 
And, you know, we've been to both the parks in the U.S., been on cruises. But, um, yeah, looking back at that time, it, it was really interesting because this story really kind of starts in 1960 in a lot of ways when Walt is involved in the 1960 Winter Olympics. And, but that's only five years after Disneyland had opened, which really was a sort of novel, unique thing at the time to have this, you know, theme park that Walt invented that was really quite a cut above the typical amusement park of the day. And, you know, he started thinking about, he really liked this experiential, you know, live place where people would come and appreciate things as opposed to just something that's on a movie screen. And when this opportunity came up or this idea came up of the ski resort, that really would have been only their second venture like that. So obviously with the legal battle and everything Catherine mentioned, this ended up not happening. And a lot of the planning for the ski resort was happening around the same time as the Walt Disney World planning for Florida. But it would have been really interesting to see had this been their second park like this, you know, what else might have happened? I mean, they might have gone off in a very sort of different direction with other recreational projects and things like that. But this one ended up not happening. But it was really interesting to see, like you said, I mean, at the time, it's sort of the sky was the limit and they hadn't sort of locked themselves into this theme park idea necessarily. And, you know, what was what was interesting because I'm one of those people, like I said, I've never been to the parks, right? So I was also, I always get them confused, right? Disneyland, Disney <laughs> yeah. World, which which one's which, you know? Yeah. But um, but I made copious notes. So Dis- <laughs> Dis- Disneyland is the one in Anaheim, right? Yeah, and correct. and that was the first one, right? Even right, though right. I think in in my imagination, I'm even growing up as a young kid, I always kind of thought of Disney World, the one in Florida. Like, it, it's weird that. Disneyland kind of only came into my imagination as like a college age kid because I went out to LA and we almost went to Disneyland, but Disney World was what I was envisioned as as a kid. Um, I say all that to say that there were very um, valuable lessons learned by the organization. As you talk about this in the book, you know, they built the park, but didn't really control anything around the park right and and I, I think it was remarked that that was a big regret of walt disney that they were not really able to leverage the, uh, the surrounding area at least in those days to have the disney imprint sort of extend beyond the amusement park part of it and didn't want to repeat that in um florida and had similar aspirations for the space on on mineral king Right. So kind of, you know, and Catherine, we'll let you jump in here, like kind of talk about that sort of ambition and and how that affected a particularly wild space like Mineral King. Sure. I and for to give context a little bit of the time, this was in the early 60s when Walt Disney was trying to plan this Mineral King project in Mineral King, California. And Disneyland had opened in 1955. So this was, again, this was a very short span of time when they had opened Disneyland and then they were starting to 
try to create this ski resort in Mineral King, California. And just a couple years later, or basically around the same time in the mid-60s, they were also starting to plan for Walt Disney World in Florida. So crazy time that they were that they were trying to build these very remarkable experiences. And what you just mentioned, Walt Disney had opened Disneyland and a lot of people didn't think it was going to be a success. They thought he was wasting a lot of his money and were pretty concerned about this. But it opens, it becomes a massive success. And with that, a lot of the, you know, he only bought the bought the land that the amusement park had used and had opened. And there was one hotel at the time, it was technically not even run by the Disney, the Disney company, but it's the Disneyland Hotel. It is now run and operated by Disney. And so if you go to Disneyland and you compare it to Disney World, it's it's unbelievable the the difference that you see because Disney Disney World, you're in that area the entire time. You're completely immersed. There's dozens and dozens of hotels. There are four parks. There's tons of land that is owned and operated by Disney. They could build many, many, many more parks. They could build many other hotels and things like that because they have the land to do so. When they built Disneyland, because they only had that small area to work with, what happened was a lot of things around that area basically popped up and much to Walt's chagrin because it was kind of cheesy motels and cheesy gift shops and things like that that basically had capitalized on Disneyland's success. And Walt was obviously very regretful of this fact, so he didn't want the same thing to happen when he started creating other experiences. And so with Walt Disney World, um, he unfortunately had passed away before he saw it open, but they built, they bought an incredible amount of land and they started to do that with Mineral King too. They bought some of the area and the land around, around it um, more than they needed. And they actually did it in a very stealth way where they basically pretended they were more some, were um, something else, another different kind of corporation because they didn't want the Disney name attached to it because they thought that the value of the land would would go up and they would have to pay a lot more money. So it was a very interesting, interesting concept. And and certainly people could read more about that in the book. But but yeah, that's that's what was what was going on. <laughs> What's really interesting as I was as I was going through the book, one of these dollar amounts back in the day were like crazy low. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that these people were talking about, like, movie grosses or, you know, oh, we spent, like, this project went crazy over budget and it was, like, a million dollars. And I'm like, you can't buy shit in Brooklyn for a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the sticker shock is is incredibly fascinating. But I, I was, you know, I kind of put on my my junior psychology hat when I when I when I read these stories and try to get into the heads of the characters, right? Because I think it makes it 
come come far more alive. And it's also a testament to the the story is wild and the the writing really captures the wildness of the story, which I think is a a, a testament to both of of you guys. But I, I I referenced that that idea of having control because it seemed like control became far more important post Anaheim in in every way in which the Disney brand brand operated. And and I think to carry it forward to juxtapose to today, I think people kind of know it as this place of maniacal control, right? Over their IP, over their projects, over a, a lot of things. And when I was reading this and I was and I'm looking at like there's pictures in, in the book of of the space, is like you're you're taking that level of control into a, a truly wild environment, meaning nature, like nature at its at its core. There's a, a lot of talk about there being only really one way in, one way out. So a lot of this hinged on getting the approval of a, a larger extension of of existing highway into Mineral King and its surrounding areas to be able to do what they wanted to do. And I just couldn't help thinking to myself that, you know, could you have had the level of control that seemed to be very important to Disney as a brand, not just to Walt Disney as a as a visionary, in an environment that is so unyielding in its elements, right? So I'll, I'll let both of you weigh in on it, but I think, Greg, it's your turn to start. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was a big element of sort of the battle and, and of, of the time where this was happening was, you know, the early 60s. And we didn't have a lot of the environmental protections in place that we have now. So there was a big conversation about control and what, you know, what areas to leave wild and what areas to develop and things like that. I mean, it is important to note that the actual area where the ski resort was going to be built was national forest land. So the National Forest Service had this land. They thought it was going to be you know, a great area for a ski resort. They were looking to develop some land as sort of part of their mission. So they offered this up to a number of companies and they put this out for a bid. And, and Disney Company was one of, of five companies that bid on this land and they ended up winning it. So, you know, it is sort of important to note that it wasn't just Disney waltzing into the woods and saying, you know, here's this beautiful area, we're going to develop it by God. So, but on the other side, as you said, I mean, they were buying up a lot of the land around it and things like that. And that was a huge concern of environmentalists, of residents, of people who own summer cabins in this area was the fact that they wanted to control it, that they wanted to develop it. And I think, I mean, in some ways, I think Disney learned some lessons from this experience sort of on both sides. I mean, they obviously learned from Anaheim that it was important to have control of additional land and to be able to, frankly, make money off of, you know, if, if, if someone's going to build additional hotels and additional you know, whatever, whatever it is along the road up into Mineral King, it might as well be Disney rather than someone else that's like reaping the benefits of that. But by the same token, I think they also learned some lessons about 
preservation and things like that that even went forward into projects like Walt Disney World where they did set aside a big portion of land there as like a wilderness preserve. So, you know, I think they learned kind of of both sides, but they certainly learned that it was important to control more than just the land that they were that was going to be developed for the project. And 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 Catherine, you know, I, I want to continue on this on this trail a little bit and talk about the the other the opposition. You know, labeled broadly as environmentalists, but there were lots of different forces that were kind of aligned in opposition to to this project, this the Sierra Club and and others, most most notably and. You know, again, when I was when I was going through the book, and, you know, I'm very familiar with with John Muir's life and, and work, both the the very positive things he did toward um, preserving um, a lot of the natural lands, and not positive things in in terms of a very negative and and and, and hateful perspectives on indigenous who were on on the land that was so coveted, but. Generally, I think back to, um, you know, Ken Burns' master of documentaries. He did this amazing documentary around national park system. I, of all the documentaries that Ken Burns has done, I think this is actually one of his best, even though it might not be one that is most, that is cited the most. And very early on in, in a lot of these areas, not specifically Mineral King, but what became Yosemite and, and other parks, parks, um, national parks, you saw people kind of coming into these areas and building things. And, this, you know, Sierra Club kind of created as a response to that. Like, if people are going to come, we need to sort of re- regulate this this stuff. So there's a long intro to kind of lead into the question, which is, despite people's best efforts to preserve land like this as something where people can immerse themselves in an experience, isn't the development in and of itself now changing the land in a way that you won't be able to experience in the way, it won't be able to be experienced in a way that draw you to want people to experience it in the first place, right? That the the minute you start building the ski lifts, the highways, the all the rest of it, you're donezo on, on people being able to really truly immerse themselves in this experience. So it seems like it's a it's a catch-22 in a, in a way. And so I'm curious as to as you were going through the research and thinking about this and having spent time in these areas, like how did they not square this reality that that seems so so obvious in hindsight? Yeah, that's such a great point. It absolutely is that catch-22, right? Because I think you are you are changing, of course, the area that you're trying to get people to see and experience. But without development, you're also, development in some kind, you're also not allowing more people to experience it. Because there's obviously that big question of accessibility and that conversation of it, which is extremely important because this mineral cane area in California is, you know, is of course, it's very beautiful. It's, but it's, it was, it was, and still is to this day, remarkably difficult to get to because it is, it had a very primitive winding road that people, it, it would take 
well over an hour just to get into the area from from where you're originally starting. And it's kind of a dangerous road. It's closed much of the year, things like that. And the people that were able to go to it was really people who were very athletic, people who were able to backpack into the area and to camp there and things like that. So, of course, if you are going to put in a resort, put in different place, different lodging, things like that, having this all-access road and maybe a monorail system or a train or something like that, that people could more easily, you know, go into this area, I think was, you know, it's also important. So it's, it's definitely a very interesting concept. I think at the time too, we were seeing this as kind of a new, not a new concept, but certainly one that was becoming more talked about because this is the 1960s. It went into the 1970s. So we're really kind of starting to have more of that conversation of should all these wild areas be developed? And I think that this, especially it being Disney, a very beloved company, especially at the time, and of course, one of the biggest names in entertainment, one of the biggest company names in America and in the world in general, being behind this, I think was was really ripe to have to have those conversations. Anytime someone says monorail, I throw it into the Simpsons. So it's like, a, yeah. <laughs> it's like they have they have like either elevated or ruined that word for me for <laughs> forever because it doesn't matter the context. I hear monorail and monorail. it's just monorail. exactly. <laughs> I write that. What's that name? Monorail. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Classic. It is so, it's such a classic. <laughs> um, but but you know, I I think that there is that that ebb and flow, right? Like Disney is a a respected name, right? And it maintains that respected name. Um, And and it's had this, again, this ebb and flow. Like I, I really loved that beyond the intrigue of this story, I, I got a better understanding of, of Disney's kind of nation business than in, any number of of more call it business focused books that have talked about disney right like who knew sleeping beauty didn't make money the first time around right like i didn't know that shit right (laughs) like like that's crazy and that folks folks thought it was um what they say that it was kind of redundant to the other like stories and i'm like aren't they all redundant (laughs) yeah Yeah, right right? (laughs) especially now yeah, like, yeah, come on, right. we're aren't we all waiting for like Toy Story five? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, they, they these critics should see Disney's up, upcoming lineup for the next five years. There's nothing right. but yeah. sequels. Yeah. Um, but in a in a in a joking way to kind of go go past just the business elements of of Disney, you do have this rising of the Sierra Club, right? You do have. These, these books and literature that are written kind of talking about, you know, what kind of, of space do we want, right? And, and, you, and you cited um, two of them, um, one called Silent Spring, the other called The Quiet Crisis, um, that, that, that started to ask these really big metaphysical, metaphysical questions about our environment, right? And 
in that's another interesting point that we're still asking these these questions but you know disney is kind of facing this uphill battle no pun intended once all these forces get aligned to delay and eventually kill this project so I want to give you guys an opportunity to kind of talk about sort of that that backdrop of of opposition and and how that set a template for future environmental challenges. And and true to form, I think Catherine, you started the first the last time around. So Greg, I'm going to let you jump in, and you can both kind of share your thoughts on on that because I think that's very central to the look forward that the book kind of closes on. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that, I mean, that's what made it such an interesting book. I think when we first started and saw this mentioned, and like Catherine said, in the museum, and we kind of think, oh, maybe you could do a neat book about what this would have been, what the ski resort would have meant to Disney and blah, blah, blah. But then as we get farther into it and realize there is this huge environmental component and that it was happening at a time in the 60s when all these questions, like you said, were really important and really burning questions. And it was like right when, you know, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the Highway Beautification Act and all these things were just starting to be passed, starting to be discussed. And it really was that the beginning of the modern environmental movement. And as this case progressed, and I think it was also important to note that Disney really doesn't come out looking like a bad guy at all in this story. I mean, Walt, in particular, was a conservationist, which is something else we we learned as we did the research for this book, is that it was very important to him. He had a whole series of wildlife documentaries in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that, you know, he really genuinely wanted to educate people about different animal species in different parts of the world. He won a bunch of conservation awards. He even won a lifetime achievement award or lifetime membership from the Sierra Club of all of all organizations. So all that was very genuine to them too. So it really made for this interesting combination of a very earnest environmental movement that was looking to protect the environment and looking to control things like pollution and overpopulation were two very big concepts at that time that people were really concerned about. And on the other side, you have a very earnest Walt Disney, you have a very earnest Disney company, even after Walt dies, that, you know, tries to scale back the plans at some points to work with environmentalists and things like that. But it does, as you said, I mean, eventually this goes to the Supreme Court. It kind of sets the tone for the way environmental cases are argued going forward. And it kind of marks a shift in thinking where prior to this case and prior to this whole movement and the way that this all unfolded, these cases legally had to show, people had to kind of show how they personally would be affected by a development like this in order to stop it. So if you went to the courts, you have to say, you know, this development is in my backyard, it's going to affect me personally, it's going to cost me money somehow. But this case really marked a shift in thinking that the environment is worth protecting kind of on its own merits, even that an area like Mineral King, in some philosophical sense, could be the plaintiff in a case to preserve it. It could be Mineral King versus, you know, the government and Mineral King should sort of be allowed to to stand for its own beauty and its own preservation and things like that. So that kind of was the backdrop of it and how it it played out going forward. 
And to add on to that, I think, you know, the the thing that we tried to accomplish when we when we wrote the book was to tell this in a very balanced way and to tell give both sides, the Disney side and people who wanted to create this resort and the people who opposed it really equal weight. And we basically tried to change points of view every every chapter. So to get readers kind of in that mindset and and give them different sympathy and 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 things like that. And hopefully readers are coming away with understanding both sides of this and and hopefully we we confuse them a little bit by by telling this in a in a fun way. And it, it certainly made it fun for us because that opposition was certainly fun to, you, you know, it's kind of a funny word to use, but it was. It was it was fun to write about. It was fun to to find out about this opposition that was led by the Sierra Club, who was one of the largest environmental groups at the time and still is now. And it was also led by some people who lived in that area because there were a handful of cabins. I don't think we had mentioned this before, but there were a handful of cabins that, you know, 60 or so that families did live in that area. And so there there was that question of, will our cabins survive this or will they be torn down to make room for for this resort? So so a lot of that opposition was was led by those cabin owners as well, including a woman named Jean Coke, who was a was a wonderful character and person that we that we talked with a lot for this book. Excited for people to find out about her when they hopefully read read this. But she had led different protests. There were there was a letter writing campaign going on. She had started a newsletter, talked to politicians, and yeah, the protests and you know that kind of thing was was like I said, fun to write about because there were hikings in the Mineral King area to educate people about it, and there was at one point a protest at Disneyland actually a march on Disneyland to protest Disney from creating creating this resort in Mineral King, California. So a lot of a lot of interesting things that that happened. The opposition was was certainly a an exciting thing to to write about. Yeah. And and it, it shows the power of advocating, right? Like Absolutely. You know, you gotta get on that like and these and these motherfuckers were advocating with typewriters old school yeah, typewriters right. like you know I, I you know i'm old enough to have used the typewriter and and felt like a boss when i got to college and got like the word processor right yeah, <laughs> which right. was still looked just like a typewriter but yeah. sort of operated like a computer but like ms dos computer <laughs> you know but but that was like a miracle having a, a word processor on your floor in the door relative to folks who had to go get a, either have a typewriter or um or go to like the lab and and get like a use a typewriter away from your door. But when I saw the pictures of her, I'm like, damn, that is an old school typewriter. We had to manually adjust yeah. the yeah. the whole thing, and you're writing letters off of that. You know, you dedicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. when you know you're serious. Oh yeah, you you fucking serious as hell. Because it took <laughs> it took you like two hours to write like one letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and don't make a mistake because you might not have whiteout. <laughs> like I don't know when whiteout was invented. Maybe they had it in the '60s, but who knows? Um, 
So I, I think yes, these people were very dedicated, and there's a there's a picture in the in the one of the pictures in a book that shows like the cabin, and it's like snowed like stove to the roof, and I'm like, man, fuck that. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't want no parts of snow that looks like that. We got an inch of snow last week in New York, and I was outraged. But um, <laughs> but I, I want to in, in the time we have left go a a, a little. I don't know if philosophical is the right word, but, um, you know, what is it about snowing, snow and skiing that gives people this notion of like kind of creating these little utopias? Um, like it's, it's, and, and, and I'm, I'm half joking, but half serious because there's like a, uh, a, a, not similar because it's not a resort, but there's like this thing called Powder Mountain that that's gotten a lot of media and business press over the past few years where these guys want to create this sort of business and eco-friendly community in a, in a similarly like hard to get to place in Utah, right? With all these grand ambitions and, you know, it's, it's not kind of quite what they, what it planned out. And then there's a recent story about these, again, these sort of tech, libertarians kind of building a new place in um, Northern California where they're buying up all this land and they want to create a, a you know, a, their own city. Um, and then we have this, which wasn't going to be its own city, but as they kind of wax philosophical about what they wanted to do, it does take on this sort of like messianic ideas, right? So I'm like, what is it about mountain snow skiing that kind of brings that out in people, right? Where they want to create these these sort of mini utopias as as part of their their projects and, and thinking and I'll let whoever wants to weigh in first on on that one. <laughs> oh boy, I this is a great question. Something I hadn't really thought about. I think the imagery of snow is such this fresh, beautiful concept, right? And I and I think that if you're when you're there and you you know you hear the the crunch of the snow underneath your your feet and you see that sometimes you're the only person there you see there's there's no tracks yet there's no footprints and sometimes you're the first person to step on that snow and i think there's something kind of poetic about that i think that this the mountains in general is such this escape and it in it has been and and we reflected on that in the book quite a bit from people like Walt Disney who actually loved nature and and loved getting away in the mountains to John Muir and to people like John Harper who who fought this development and who was part of the Sierra Club there was always that common thread of getting away to nature, getting away to the mountains, escaping the the hustle and, and bustle of daily life. And it was always it was always nature that they they wanted to to escape from or escape to rather. And I just think it's especially nowadays with with you know technology and stuff, of course that wasn't necessarily the same kind of case that they that we have today where it follows us everywhere but especially back then you could literally escape from it you can leave your your work behind because we didn't have the the remote kind of work capabilities and things like that that we have that we have nowadays you could leave your leave your telephone behind and and leave everything and 
just kind of grab a backpack or grab some camping or or grab your skis and and really escape and and you're mostly alone with your thoughts and I think there's something very very beautiful about that. Yeah, I would say in addition to that, I think just skiing by its nature of it's such a time consuming pastime and you have to drive so far to get to a place that kind of just makes more sense i think to make it a resort and escape although really at the time that the that the mineral king resort was being planned there weren't there weren't as many sort of all-inclusive year-round like escape resorts like this kind of the european model so that was something else that was kind of unique about this but of course we're in colorado so we're surrounded by you know vale and breckenridge and aspen and all these places that have really perfected that but yeah there is something unique about skiing you're right where people really see it as this all-inclusive escape and they'll go up for you know a few days because it's i mean in colorado basically unless you want to get up at 5 a.m. And, and fight traffic and then fight traffic all the way back, you're kind of better off <laughs> going for a few days, to, you know, to make it somewhat of a positive experience. It's funny, too, when you when you say this, by the way, I'm thinking we're talking about this escape and and having this nature experience and things like that. My my other thought is that's how people think of the Disney parks, too, is the ultimate escape when we think of Walt Disney World and you're consumed in this kind of utopian view of the world, right? It's it's very charming and there's princesses and fairy tales and and things like that. So it's it's kind of this weird dichotomy that we're that we're seeing in a in a weird way. I'm just afraid of long lines. Like <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, it's not it's not so utopian when you go there um, <laughs> yeah. with the money and the lines and everything, but yeah, but there is kind of that view of it, <laughs> and th- and that also like reminds me of the other Simpsons when they go to Itchy and Scratchy Land and they like buy all these like thousands of dollars worth of Itchy and Scratchy dollars and then no one takes Itchy and Scratchy dollars, <laughs> yeah. and the machines go crazy, right? Like yeah. they they actually go nuts and start killing everybody. Um, I don't, I don't <laughs> know how this Simpsons re- There's a Simpsons reference for pretty much everything, I think. <laughs> there, there really is, though. I think in the four years of like doing this show, this is the first time I've referenced the Simpsons even just one time and I've done it twice <laughs> in, in this one in this one episode. So I don't know what that says about the way the rest of my day is going to go, but here we are. And I wanted to think about this because, and then we'll get to the the drop, which is the final segment of the show. But like this idea of use and, and usefulness constantly comes up, not just in the, in the book, but in development and, and developing parlance, right? If you spend enough time in, in any place where there's real estate interest and there's development interest, there's, there's always like a, literally a use case for this land or a use case for this building. And, you know, how do we take this, this land or this thing and make it more useful in, in, in some way? And oftentimes this is, this is a conversation that's had in strictly economic or commercial terms. And as I was reading the book and kind of thinking about my own personal biases, um, of which I have many, which is why I have a show, I don't know if use and usefulness can be strictly in commercial or economic terms. Like, I don't know the dollar value of 
waking up and experiencing a sunset in a place like this, right? Like when you talked about that that crunch and feeling of like putting your feet in snow for the first time, you look behind you and the only footsteps are your own, right? Like what's that worth? And as I was reading the book, it seems like, despite the fact I'm not trying to make villains or heroes, but if we think about things in these terms, we're constantly trying to monetize things that actually have a value way and beyond what anybody can can put on it, even though we do our best efforts. So as you kind of think about the future and, and lessons taken away from this book, can we frame one of these lessons in this in in, in trying to push back against the commercial, even when well intentioned commerciality? It does seem to somewhat cheapen an experience, my own editorial, but I'm curious to get both your thoughts on 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 that push and pull. And then we can get to the drop, the final segment of the show. Yeah, I mean, I think in a sort of devil's advocate way, I think, you know, there certainly are a ton of places where you can get that experience and you can go have your private wilderness moments. But I think other there also is a is a case for, first of all, you know, someone like the Forest Service saying we want to develop an area like this. And as Catherine said, somewhere to like make it accessible. So I don't know. I think at, at the time, I think like Catherine said, I think the fear was everything is going to be developed. Like every, you know, there's no protection, like there's no limit to what's going to happen in terms of all these wild places being developed. I mean, luckily, obviously, that that never came to be. And there's still plenty of refuges out there. And there's still plenty of national parks and things like that. So I don't know. I think it's just it's a balance. And it's people like to go skiing. People like to go to national parks. I mean, there's kind of a place, I think, for both. And, you know, I think maybe there's people that go to a ski resort even now and they do get that that kind of sense of being in nature and all that. And maybe they wouldn't seek that out otherwise. So I'm not sure. I think I think it's just all about balance and just making sure that there's kind of both types of experiences available, which I think luckily is is still the case. Yeah, I would I would certainly agree. I think that you know, after writing this and then during, of course, writing this, Greg and I would have these conversations and and kind of and ask ourselves and ask each other, what do we think was right? Was this what was supposed to happen that this resort was never built? Do we have kind of sympathy for the Disney company? Do we have sympathy for the environmental movement? I think in all circumstances, the answer was always yes. So we we really went back and forth. And I think to do this book justice and to to tell the story well, we always, again, we did have sympathy for both sides and we had understanding for both sides. I think that lesson really is to just keep having these discussions because this isn't this wasn't just an important thing that we talked about in the 1960s and 1970s. We still this it's still just as relevant today. And I think that's what's just so crazy about this this concept is we need to keep having these conversations. We need to have this perfect balance of making some areas accessible for sure, but also having having lands be protected and and kind of what they were originally supposed to be. So so, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is um it is a, a very relevant story and I, I learned so much uh, about, like I said, the 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 inner thinkings and, and workings of this organization and and given, like I said, their omnipotent place in in our entertainment and financial culture, it, it does help you frame a lot of things and think about them in a very interesting way. So I'm, I'm really glad you guys tackled tackled this book. Um, so I want to get us out on the drop. And the drop is basically uh, a recommendation to our listeners. It can be anything at all, it can be serious, can be fun. You know, the it's a literally an open book on on drops. And I'll go first. And and my drop is a, a show on Netflix. It's a Swedish show called um Snab a Cash. It has two seasons. And it's this this really interesting sort of gritty tale about about folks kind of trapped in in different circumstances around startup culture and crime culture and how those two cultures might not be so different from one another though they they might seem to be on on the surface and um I, I watch a, a lot of stuff but I, I really enjoy um, international shows more so than kind of domestic US shows and so I've been on a really long streak of those and um Snap a Cash is my, my my latest obsession. And again, it's a Swedish show um, on Netflix, and that's my drop. So so you guys are, are up. Um, Catherine, do you want to go first, or do you both have a shared drop? I don't know how you guys are doing this. <laughs> no, this is great. I um, will have to check that, that show out that you mentioned, though I'm kind of surprised that you didn't mention The Simpsons. I feel like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel you know. like that would have been the, fir- the full circle moment. Someone has to mention <laughs> the funny thing about The Simpsons, it's going to be on TV long after I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> all of and us. It, all of us. Like, The Simpsons will never not be on TV. It's like <laughs> it's like SVU. It will always yeah, right. be on, on TV. Um, I love it. <laughs> and, Grey's, and Grey's Anatomy. Those are the three shows. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That will never Absolutely. not be on TV in, in some way, shape, or form, right? But now The Simpsons doesn't make doesn't make the cut. I'm a big fan, but <laughs> I haven't I haven't watched in any serious way probably in a decade. <laughs> There's too much. You just will never stop. It's way exactly, too much. So. Way too much. <laughs> the one thing that I I thought would be a fun drop to mention today, especially given just because obviously we wrote a book that touches on a lot of Disney history is there's a, a series that's that's basically more like a documentary type treatment to it it's called behind the attraction on Disney plus and it really gives that it gives every episode gives a history behind a Disney parks attraction and it really gives context as to what the Disney company was doing at the time what, how they created it, a lot of imagineering and innovations and everything like that, and goes into to certain attractions like Space Mountain, Haunted Mansion, It's a Small World, a lot of really classics that really set the tone for the Disney company and, and some of the attractions that we actually mention in our book. So so thought that would be a that that was an appropriate drop for That's a good one. That's for a the good episode. One. Yeah. Awesome. Greg, do you have one as well? Or are you guys sharing yeah, that? Yeah, my drop. So okay. as we as we're taping this, we're a day away from Oscar nominations. So we've been watching a lot of award shows and things like that. And uh, the movie The Holdovers, for those who haven't seen it, it's actually streaming on Peacock now, but um, definitely going to be, I'm sure, an Oscar nominated movie, Alexander Payne and Paul Giamatti. 
and just really enjoyed it. It's very kind of old school drama. And I feel like it's kind of cool this year because I feel like the last few years, some of the Oscar nominations have been some of the big movies have been a little out there or a little maybe very artistic and things like that. So there seems to this year be kind of a swing back towards just good old storytelling and acting and things like that. And the holdovers, Paul Giamatti is great. And the young actor who I think hasn't been in any other movie before that's the main kid is really good. So that's just one that I would recommend um, that people check out. So funny. Really I, good. I watched that this weekend as a matter oh, really? of fact. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I did enjoy it. I, I felt like I've seen it, but I yeah. still, it was very goodwill hunting meets dead poet society. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it hits a lot of familiar beats, but, but it was, like, but it was a great movie. Like I, yeah, I, I really, well I really, really enjoyed it. Found myself kind of laughing at times and, you know, kind of knowing when the end is nigh as well. So, but it was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was a, it was a really, really good movie. And, and I actually was glad to see Paul Giamatti actually act again. Um, yeah. Cause billions is awful. Like that yeah. show fucking sucks. Um, <laughs> and and everyone in it is bad in it. Like I know it gets all these like certain types really love that show, but I argue to everybody that that show is actually garbage. And um <laughs> but you know, get the checks. But Paul Giamatti just he's acting, but he's acting this caricature and it's just so ridiculous. And <laughs> I, I, I come from that world. I used to be a trader and that's why I watch it. And I'm like, this show is absolute garbage. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 it's terrible. <laughs> so I'm glad to see that he hasn't lost as he was collecting all those checks and billions that he hasn't lost the ability to actually perform. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Hilarious. Kat, Kat and Greg, I, I want to thank you both for, for joining me on, on the deep dive. It's a, it's a great conversation. Again, the book is called Disneyland on a Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalist, and the Ski Resort That Never Was. I, I really, really enjoyed the book. And, and thanks again for coming on the show with me. Thank oh, you. Yes. Yeah, great conversation. Great questions. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, this was a blast. Thanks so much, Philip. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.